Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi guys, and welcome back to Medicus. My name is Rasa, and today I am joined by Dr. Delisha Haynes, who is a family medicine physician who blazed her own trail and founded the Family First Health Center a membership-based clinic in Daytona Beach, Florida. But prior to finding success by carving out her own space, Dr. Haynes experienced mental health struggles like many physicians and is a huge advocate for training and physician well-being. Welcome, Dr. Haynes. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you for having me. So let's dive right into it. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about yourself, touching on your upbringing and your journey to medicine? Yeah, so um, I think some people always know that they want to be a doctor, and I since the seventh grade or before I knew I either wanted to be a doctor or a teacher or a lawyer. And I found out that if I became a doctor, I could kind of be, you know, all three, I could teach. And I really enjoy teaching medical students, teaching my patients. I could advocate for people, which was the part of law that I liked. And then obviously healing people. And I had an experience as a seventh grader going to the doctor. I had found a mass in my breast and I went in and the doctor didn't like introduced himself. He just came in and just started like pressing on my chest. And then he leaned back and he said, it's probably benign uh, fibroadenoma. The surgery shouldn't leave a scar. So if she wants to be a stripper when she grows up, that'll be fine. And he just like walked out of the room. And so me and my mom were sitting there like, what? And I just started crying. But it was one of those moments that I remember thinking to myself, like, when I become a doctor, you know, I'm not going to be this type of doctor. Like, I'm going to be the type of doctor that I wish that I had. And really just kind of set on that path to do just that. Went to undergraduate at the uh, University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, where I ran track. Went to medical school at the, at the University of Kentucky College of Medicine and later graduated. And because I went into family medicine, I thought I was going to go into psychiatry because of you know my history of having dealt with depression, but decided like I wanted to be the person that they came to first, if you don't know that you need a psychiatrist. And so I landed on family medicine and I had a really strong vision for how I wanted to practice medicine and I ended up starting my own practice right out of residency. That's incredible. So you have been open about your personal struggles in medical training. Can you go into depth about your mental health journey and getting to a healthy space? Absolutely. And it started actually, so my first episode of major depression was my senior year of high school. I'm a military brat. My dad was in the army. And so we moved my senior year and I got depressed to the point of becoming suicidal. I didn't know what depression was. Mm-hmm. I just knew I, I wanted the pain to end. And I was keeping a journal that my teacher had to read. And she picked up on it and pulled me to the side. And that was the beginning of me getting help and me kind of understanding what depression was. So luckily for me, when I went to medical school, went to undergrad first, I was an athlete, didn't have any problems then. I was so physically active. So, you know, into the community and, and things. And then I go to medical school and I go from being a division one athlete who works out every single day mm-hmm. to sitting on my behind, studying for eight hours a day, completely secluded from, you know, my support system. And second year in medical school, I went through a breakup, I was doing fine actually from that. But just over time, those symptoms came back that I'd experienced in high school and I was mad at myself because I was like, I'm a med student now. I should be immune to this. You know, I should know what's going on. But at least I knew what it was. I ended up missing a test and I had to get 
permission from the dean of students to retake it. I overslept. And he was actually a psychiatrist by training. And he was the advisor for one of the organizations that I became president of. I became president of all these organizations in an attempt to feel better about myself, Mm -hmm. really. Like I started looking for all these external things to kind of fill the internal void. So he had this front row seat to my decline. And it wasn't until I went into his office, I remember like walking there and feeling just, you know, awful and not knowing what was about to happen. And he was like, you know, right now your grades are okay. They're slipping. And I think you need to take a break while you're still in this position. Like don't wait until you're in this kind of like abysmal place as far as your grades and everything. And when he gave me permission to take a break, I was able to give myself permission to. And I I took some time off to be treated for depression. And while I was out, we had five deaths in my family. So I was able to be there for my family through that. And then when I came back to medical school, the story was she had five deaths in her family and then she got depressed, which is not what happened. But, you know, everyone thinks you have to have like this reason for it. And so I just kind of let that be, you know, what happened, but had been treated the entire time and came back, was able to complete and go to residency. And it wasn't until residency when I had to grand rounds topic and I chose depression and suicide amongst physicians as my grand rounds topic, which is when I really became aware of how common because I thought I was the weakling. I thought I was the only one that was struggling. And that was really kind of the beginning probably of advocacy. Yeah, it's really tough. And it's really nice that you took the advice, right, of your dean of students, because I feel like I hear this a lot from our dean of students, where they really do advise, you know, medical students to take time before you get the fail in the class and you have to remediate and all of that. It's an easier thing to explain in your applications, too. And obviously, it gets you the help that you need faster. Getting that fail is probably going to add to the stress that you're experiencing. But we as medical students tend to not heed those, you know, words of wisdom and advice and just think that we can push through anything. And so it's no secret that physician suicide and mental health are taboo topics. As you said, you know, you felt like you were the only one. And this is largely part due to the fear of repercussions in our field. So what motivated you to come forth with your story? So in 2017, Florida State College of Medicine, where I'm faculty in addition to having my own practice, they had a medical student who died by suicide. And Florida State is, the way that they do things is so utopic compared to the medical school experience that I had. So I just looked at them as like, it can't happen there. But the first two years are not utopic. Then when they get to the clinical, they're working one-on-one with attendings like me. But prior to that, it is what it is. And I found out about his suicide and I immediately called the dean of our local campus. And I just said, I need to come in and talk to your students and you can't be in the room. And the other thing that happened that was even more impactful was my best friend died by suicide that same year. And he was the one, he was a lawyer. He was amazing. He actually was my best friend's husband. And in order to get to her, he had to go through me. (laughs) And so we became, you know, close and I had no idea he was struggling. We only talked about our wins. We only Mm -hmm. talked about what what our next goal was. He was always trying to kind of put me in a position to look good or to, you know, to be on some board or this or that. And I just really didn't know that he was struggling. And so I already made the decision that I was never going to have the experience where someone close to me didn't know my story. 
Yeah, it's really hard. My family recently experienced a death of a close family friend as well by suicide. And it was just one of those things where this is the person that we never, ever would have thought. But it is, it tends to be those high achieving individuals, you know, like your friend was a lawyer, where we want to share our successes and kind of push down the negatives that happen in our day to day and tend to not describe them. And so you have written a book, which is kind of like a manual, right, of sorts. I actually purchased this book right after I heard you speak at the I Am Able Foundation event. And so I have read it. It's a really nice guide for medical trainees through difficult times. So can you talk more about your book, The Dawn, and what inspired you to write it? So definitely the the loss of those two individuals was the part that pushed me into more talking about it. And I actually was in a program where we had to write a book to graduate. Oh, <laughs> you know, what do overachievers do? We put ourselves in these situations. But the book has been in my heart for a while. So when they asked, like, you know, if you were to write a book, what would your topic be? I was like, oh, well, it would be about kind of, you know, overcoming depression and particularly focused for those who are going through medical training and, you know, attendings and that sort of thing. And it was really a way of also like honoring my friend. I think all of us who lose someone to suicide, we want to find a way to make it meaningful. And he was always a teacher. He was always helping everyone. And so... I don't mention him by name in the book. Um, I do mention the medical student because the medical student's father actually wrote one of the forewords. But it was really just a way of paying it forward. And I actually, when I was writing it, I kind of pretended like I was talking to him at times. And when I was doing, at the time, I was doing a lot of like Facebook lives on it before someone hacked my account. And, you know, I, would, I literally had his funeral program behind the camera because I'm not really an extrovert. And so, you know, I had to find something where my love was greater than my fear in order to push through some of those limitations and limiting beliefs and whatnot. So I wanted to basically use myself as a case study, this high achieving person who uh, from the outside has, you know, everything kind of like together and what I went through and then also tie in all the stats that I had learned when I did my grand rounds, which mm -hmm. was grand rounds. I didn't tell anybody that I struggled. You know, it was that these are the facts. And so the books was a way to bring the two together. And so it goes from kind of telling my story to bringing out the overwhelming statistics, which really helps us as scientists understand like this is real. It's really common and we have to do some more about it. Yeah. And I think one thing for you, it was easy to notice those symptoms in you and define them what they are because you had struggled with it previously in high school. But there are a lot of people who go into medical school not having experienced depression. Right. And, you know, you get in this pressurized environment where it can make anyone feel this way. And then those people tend to be kind of confused, like, what is wrong with me? Why am I feeling like this? So I think it's also really nice how in the book you outlined, these are the symptoms, this is what to look for. Like if you're feeling like this, it's okay. Um, it was just, I think, a really, really nicely written, again, manual that you could read very quickly and understand exactly to the point what you need to do. So what has the response to your book been like from the medical community? It's been great from those who have read it. It's still you know, a topic that we don't give enough air to. One of my goals is to really like to make sure that every student has it before they start medical school. Like I was like, I want this to be like the white coat ceremony book. 
And uh, at Florida State University, it has been. So that was great to be able to, prior to the pandemic, actually went to their white coat ceremony and stood on stage and handed a book in each individual. And I think it was just a really great showing by the school of, yes, we've lost this student and we're doing things about it. We're doing things to help equip students. And so the, the response amongst those who've read it has been great. And just trying to make sure that the word about the topic, you know, not necessarily, you know, the book is great, but really just the topic is being talked about before you start. Like I should have known before I started that I was entering the profession with the highest suicide rate. Yeah. We should all know that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and because I could have been better equipped you know, especially because I knew coming in that I had depression. And and to the point that you made earlier, that was great for me. I wasn't trying to figure out that I was depressed. I was Mm -hmm. just mad that I was. But the problem with depression is you can't trust your own mind. And so they don't even know that these feelings of guilt and this lack of energy, that this is not like a character problem. It's a chemical problem. And Mm -hmm. so by the time that they seek help, you know, the grades have gotten to a point usually that now it's a different kind of discussion or just going in knowing that you're entering this profession with the highest suicide rate and being aware of that can really help people. Yeah, definitely. So we had Dr. Pamela Weibel on the show previously, who I, I know you know personally as well. And she feels very strongly about having this informed consent to enter medical school because it really is, you know, there's certain things we don't know, like you said, about the the rate of suicides or just the rigor of the training, right? Like you can be told, oh, you'll have to study a lot, but it's kind of the mental drain that takes on you. It would be really helpful to be aware of that. So your book focused on the trainee, but of course there are systemic issues that need to be addressed on medicine to combat physician depression and suicide. So what are some broad changes that you want to see in our field to minimize the burden placed on physicians? One of the main things is, you know, these licensure questions that you know a lot of states have gotten rid of so kudos to them but most haven't and they still they show up on hospital when you're trying to get credential at hospitals those questions show up and they really deter people from getting help uh, so when I was a med student and I took the time off you know that was one of my questions was like is this going to how is this going to look right and my dean of students said that, oh, you know, it's just going to show up as like a personal leave of absence. Well, then I had to fill out the forms where it says like, have you ever been diagnosed or treated? And then there was this long list of things that one of them was depression. And I went to him and I was like, okay, this one over here, this one applies to me. But this checkbox is like, I'm checking it off to all of these things. Yeah. And what am I supposed to do? And he was like, well, you are expected to to check yes. And if you do, this is what's going to happen. And he laid out, you know, this person's going to call you and this is going to, and I, I checked, no, I lied, yeah. um, which is what most of us do. And it, when I went to residency after I gave my grand rounds presentation, and then I was kind of like, you know, I knew about the statistics. I felt a little bit more empowered. So the next time that I had to, to answer that question, I checked. Yes. Cause I was like, I double dog dare you to come <laughs> after me. And that lasted, you know, until they called. And then my blood ran cold and they said, like, we noticed that before you checked no, and this time you checked yes. And, you know, I told them what happened. I was like, yeah, I lied before because of this call right here. And they wanted to have all of my records and they wanted me to attend some course. And the only thing that 
helped me was that when I was in medical school, the main treatment that I received was from my pastor who's clinically trained. Mm-hmm. Well, that's protected because he's a pastor. Oh, interesting. So they were in this dilemma where they were like, oh, you know, it's a clinically trained person that you were seeing through your church. So they didn't know what to do. And they ended up just kind of like, you know, saying, okay, go on. <laughs> um, so I've actually also been on a mission to get more pastors clinically trained just so that like, this is really protected as opposed to, you know, things that aren't. But I do think those questions really deter physicians in training, physicians in practice from even getting help because they don't even want to face having to make that checkbox or, or let it be known. So I think, you know, having access to help where you, you don't necessarily have to divulge your who you are and all of your right. you know personal information, your information, you can become anonymous, which my current medical society is offering that. They cover three sessions and then you would have to pay for it yourself. But those are some of the things. And then just making mental health check-ins normal, like it should be an opt-out, everybody's including. Right. And you have to like opt out if you don't want to do it because that was one of the things I was really happy with Florida State following Matt's death is they instituted that. You know, after I met with the students, we talked about some things that could help was just making this mandatory check-in with, you know, a psychologist. And if it needed to be like five minutes, great. And if it, you go in there and it becomes hours, also good. But really just making mental health check-ins a normal thing and really normalizing physicians taking care of their mental health. Yeah, you know, Loyola has also done that. I believe they started it last year as well, where people have to opt out. It's part of orientation. And I think that's a wonderful thing. It doesn't take too many resources, I believe, and it can really save lives. So I really hope that more schools continue to do that. But one way to cope with the broken system is to leave it <laughs> and blaze your own path, which is what you did by opening your health center in Florida. So can you go into depth about what led you to decide that was the path forward for you and the unique practice that you have created? Yeah. So I had, again, a really strong vision for how I wanted to practice medicine. So right after residency, I actually started my own practice. Now at the time, it was 2009. I didn't know about direct primary care. I just created this, you know, insurance-based practice and started to feel like I was working more for the insurance companies than, or having to deal more with them, you know, than my patients. And really started to see that even though I had my own practice, you know, the person who's paying is the person who kind of like pulls a lot of the strings. Right. And they sent a contract with a 40% cut to how much they were going to pay. And I realized quickly, like, okay, I would have to almost double how many patients I see per day just if they were I am, or like fire staff. And I'd heard about membership-based medicine. I specifically heard about direct primary care. So I, when all that was happening, I, and I was clinically depressed again at the time, but I made a shift because I knew I was like, I'm not anywhere near retirement age. I still know I want to practice medicine, but I'm not going to practice it the way that I would have to if I were to stay in that system. So I, you know, switched to direct primary care, which was definitely, you know, it's definitely been very different. Now I help other doctors when they're transitioning and helping them with their business. But I had to learn like to sell, which I'd never done before. You know, I had to learn how to pitch, which I'd never done before. But it was so much fun. Looking back, obviously, like at the time, it didn't always feel fun. <laughs> <I bet. laughs> because 
Financially, I basically had to go back to residence and rebuild, but got to the point now that, you know, our revenue got to where it was double what I was making when I was in taking insurance. And more importantly, I had more control over my schedule, still able to spend the time with patients and really practice medicine with the vision that I actually went to medical school to do it. Uh, And I think you've trained for so long that it's completely worthwhile to do whatever you need to do to be able to practice in line with that vision. Uh, Yeah, I totally understand. And I think it's wonderful to build a model that allows you for that flexibility in your schedule that you talked about. So you mentioned direct primary care. So can you talk a little bit more about that model and how it works, touching on the payment structure, services available, and how you think this is advantageous to the insurance model for both physicians and patients? Yeah. So when you look at what frustrates doctors and patients, it's largely like the same thing. You know, patients don't like being rushed. They don't like feeling like a number. They want to feel like they have a relationship, especially with their primary care doctor. They want to feel like they're getting their money's worth when they're going to the doctor. And doctors, we want to sleep at night feeling like we did a good job, that we've covered everything, that, you know, we didn't feel rushed and weren't able to touch certain topics because of time. And in the insurance model, I just found that I had to see more and more patients to stay where I was, which meant that the time that I spent with each patient was less. Yeah. And so it takes time to do a good history and to really kind of go into what the patient is there for, specifically if you're going to do something that's heavy on mental health, which I do. Right. So direct primary care is a model of providing primary care through a direct payment system. So rather than going through the insurance, your patient pays a membership fee. You know, Every month they pay a fee to be a part of the practice. It's kind of like a gym style membership, but to your doctor's mm-hmm. office. And rather than coming in and lifting weights and whatnot, you can come in and get your EKG or your analysis or be treated for your you know, URI or get a pap smear. Really, all of the primary care services are delivered kind of in that model. And it's really nice because there's a lot of unknowns in terms of how much medicine costs and people mm-hmm. hate getting those surprise bills you know, after coming to a doctor's office and with direct primary care, you always know exactly how much it's going to cost. There are no surprises. Yeah. So it helps with our patients that need that follow-up for their blood pressure, their diabetes, that they already know how much it's going to be. So they might as well come in Mm -hmm. and that we know when they have it, so we can tell them to come in. And then we really get to advocate for people as well. So, you know, it's interesting that I didn't know how much anything cost in medicine. I just knew you needed it. You you need a CDC or you need a hemoglobin C. I didn't know how much it costs. And now I know how much it costs and that you need it. And I can go into negotiation mode Mm -hmm. and find it at the highest quality at the lowest price. So that's what we've also been able to do for our patients. MRIs, we've been able to get them for $300 instead of thousands of dollars. My entire kind of um, little panel that I do, that's like a CBC and a CMP and lipid panel and TSH and free T4 and just kind of basic things Mm -hmm. is 30 bucks. And my patients know how much it's going to be. So they're they're not afraid of what the cost is going to be for their ongoing care to look after their kidneys or their, their diabetes and that sort of thing. It really just takes a lot of that ambiguity in terms of the price out and preserves the doctor-patient relationship, which mm-hmm. is really what you know healthcare is all about, is that getting back to the doctor-patient relationship and everybody who's in between them has to get out of the room. It's a really nice model to be able to practice directly. 
That's amazing. I mean, I remember before I entered medical school, there was a time where I went to the emergency department and I was just trying to figure out like, how much is this going to cost, right? No one can tell you because no one knows. Right. And then we had this lecture my first year of medical school where we talked about insurance and the doctor presenting it basically said the same thing. He's like, it doesn't make any sense. You and I can have the same insurance, but things will cost different. No one knows what's going on. So it's really nice. It does give patients a huge peace of mind to know like, this is how much I'm going to pay. Like, I know I need it. I'm okay paying this, no surprise bills. And again, just preserving that patient-doctor relationship where you do feel like the doctor knows what's going on as opposed to being like, I don't know how much this is going to cost you. But something that I found really interesting while browsing your website is that you offer a variety of cosmetic services. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's important to provide such services in a primary care setting? Well, it's probably not, but, <laughs> um, you know, this is where it really gets back into what you want in terms of what your interests are. And prior to medicine, I was also in interior design. And while I was in medical school, I actually was a decorating consultant. And so I've always cared about symmetry and appearances. And I thought I was going to be interested in dermatology. I thought I was going to be a dermatologist or a psychiatrist. And so, you know, family medicine was a really good way of being able to Touch all everything. It. Yeah, everything that I, if you can't decide on who you don't want to see, because <laughs> yeah. I was like, do I, do I not want to see men? Do I not want to see women? You know, so it was a great way to be in a spot where you can just kind of like choose certain things that you really specialize in. And so I knew that I, I've always enjoyed aesthetics and I've always enjoyed helping people feel their best on the inside and have that reflect on the outside in terms of like, I feel like I've got so much energy, but I look tired. I look old. So we like to have those match. So I'm definitely more into the mental health space, but I also want that physical appearance to, you know, as you're treating someone and proving them, like you want that to shine and you want that to come through. So for me, it made a lot of sense. And I'm also good at it. Like the thing that we had to pay attention to in everything is like, okay, what are you good at? (laughs) You know, what are you like naturally good at? And my last patients of the day typically are aesthetic patients. So it's a really nice way for me to end the day in terms of like beautifying people. The rest of the day has been kind of more kind of like complicated. So it's a nice way to go out. It's like, and, you know, now your wrinkles are gone. Um, yeah. So, and everybody's happy in aesthetics. You know, they get that mirror and they look and they're just like, oh, yes. So it, it does help with that. People who like instant gratification and in family medicine, you don't get always instant gratification. Like sometimes, you know, it takes a while and so aesthetics is that like instantly see an improvement. And a lot of my aesthetic patients end up becoming medical patients and vice versa. Yeah, I believe that. I know my mom was a CNA for a really long time. And then she actually left the medical field because she too was frustrated just with the feeling that she was being told what to do for her patients as opposed to the patients, you know, being able to do for the patients what they needed. And so she actually now is a massage therapist. And her mentality was the exact same. She was like, now I just make people feel good. (laughs) And so I feel good because people feel good. But opening and running this practice, especially one that doesn't follow the typical structure, like the insurance model must be difficult and require quite a bit of business savvy. Did you have any formal training? And if not, how did you go obtaining the knowledge? No formal training. I'm the school of hard knocks and knockdown drag out fights. And, <laughs> um, and one, of the, one of the things I did during my last year residency, knowing that I was going to open my own practice, knowing that I wasn't going to be able to afford an office manager, 
uh, is usually you have some flex time. And I use that time to network with all of the practice managers in the area for a few reasons. One, to get the knowledge, but also to get the network of people that like when I didn't know what to do, I'd have someone that I could reach out to and ask questions. And some of them gave me terrible advice, which luckily I recognize as terrible advice. And a lot of those practices are no longer in existence. <laughs> and then others gave, you know, some quite good advice, you know, that I ran with. And I always try to be in rooms where I am not the smartest person in the room. Just, you know, again, be a continual student. And that has really benefited me looking at the way that other businesses are run, because we don't really think of medicine as a business, especially like I think of what I do as a calling and it and it was, it was kind of tough for me to see it as a business um, mm-hmm. until I had to be able to pay my bills. <laughs> so making those business decisions, I needed to get away from doctors in terms of taking yeah. advice because we don't always have the best business savvy and actually spend more time with business owners. I didn't take a single like accounting course in undergrad or anything that had anything to do with business. And I think that would have been beneficial to have some basics. And even in medical school, it's hard because we're learning so much that the thought of adding anything else to it is hard. But we're like the only profession that goes in not knowing how we're going to get paid. Right. <laughs> At the end, we just hope that someone's going to give us a six-figure salary. So I think really we have to understand the business of medicine and we have to get involved. There was a time when doctors ran the hospital, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't like some MBA that doesn't have any clinical background. Right. And now we've got all these like Wall Street suits that are running hospitals and the doctors are cowardly, not even going up to them and, yeah. and questioning them. And there was a time where that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. The doctors actually ran things and knew what they were talking about. And in order to do that, you have to understand some of like the business practices. So I think it is important for us to get back into that. Obviously, time is difficult. I'm in it because I own my own practice. Mm-hmm. But I think even employed physicians, physicians who are at hospitals, we really have to really take the reins of healthcare back. I definitely agree because seeing some of these policies that came forth about insurance companies dictating dialysis and things like that. And I mean, the same thing happens in hospitals when you have someone who doesn't understand medicine running a hospital, right? So I really do think that we need to bring physicians back into managing the healthcare system. So what advice would you give to physicians who are interested in joining the direct primary care movement, but are afraid to deviate from the traditional model? Well, you've got to hang out with people who are doing it. <laughs> so <laughs> fear is the one thing that gets smaller as we walk toward it. And you know, there's always the fear of the unknown. And so when you're around people who are doing it and doing it successfully, you start to see like, okay, well, maybe I can do this. You know, there's, yeah. there's a development of uh, direct specialty care, which are specialists who are doing membership, either, either membership-based medicine or just doing cash pay for surgeries and those types of things. So try and put yourself in a position where you're around that kind of person. So like mm-hmm. I have med students that rotate with me and I don't think it's all that special of an experience because I'm in it every day. So I take yeah. it for granted, but they're like, you just spent 30 minutes with that patient. Oh yeah, no, I've got 30 minute appointment times, but that's not how it is. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was in that model too. I, I know what that's like. And just getting exposure I think it's really important. One thing that I did in medical school, which is, this is probably not like the best advice, but I'm going to give it anyway. So 
my last year of medical school, you could go and do rotations elsewhere, Mm -hmm. but they had to be for a month. And rather than doing for a month, I was like, well, in two weeks, I'm going to know whether I belong here. So I did like two weeks at one place, two weeks at another place and went to a lot more places. Mm -hmm. Got to see how they operated behind the scenes because anybody can put on a face for interview day. Right. And, you know, like, oh, we're just so happy here. But when you're really there, like a fly on the wall and they kind of forget you're present, they'll start slipping up and telling you things how they really are. And I think it's so important to, you know, even if you have to be a little rogue, it's your opportunity to get exposed to something that might be the career that you need to take, the residency that's right for you. Because we make really big decisions off of very little information. Definitely. Um, so expanding the information that you have and getting around people who are doing things differently. I got my eggs frozen not too long ago. I invited my medical student. I tried to invite my medical student to come up because like, they don't have exposure to reproductive endocrinology. They wouldn't let me, but you know, <laughs> you know, but I'm an experience for sure. Yeah. Cause you know, like she was like, I, I might be interested in that, but when do you ever get to shadow somebody to see right. And the answer is you don't, unless you find a way. So I think with anything that you're interested in, finding people who are semi-doing it and just spending time with them, interviewing them. But if you get to like hang out with them and follow them and take it. That's awesome advice. And so how can our listeners help to address the physician mental health crisis in our nation? And do you have any other parting words of advice for our listeners, especially those in their early medical years? It's so important that we stand up for each other. The medical culture and the nursing culture are very different. Like the nurses are like dolphins and the the doctors like sharks. Um, There's blood in the water. We don't have each other's back. And I think that we can be so critical of each other and really taking the time to step back and be an advocate. It's like you never know when you're going to need one. So when you see something that is wrong, when you see someone who needs support, finding a way to give it. I started an organization called White Coat Safe Space and it started off with like wristbands that say White Coat Safe Space, White Coat Brave Space, and then YANA, which stands for You Are Not Alone. Uh, because like you don't always know what to say to someone. You can see that they're going through it, but you may not know what to say. And the thought was like, you know, just put a wristband now with like your sticky note with your number on it. I'm a safe space and you can call yeah. me. So really committing to having a safe space and being one is important and just speaking out everything that we can do to question the culture of medicine, this macho mentality, that we can be healers and be healed at the same time. Most certainly. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your work? So a few places across social media, it's Dr. Delicia MD, which is D-R-D-E-L-I-C-I-A-M-D. And then uh, my website is drdeliciamd.com. <laughs> so wonderful. Um, those are some places. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you again for you know sharing your thoughts and your knowledge regarding the physician mental health care crisis and your way of addressing that for yourself by building this unique primary care model. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. 
This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.